you have a Bible with you, uh, maybe there's some in the seats in front of you or you have a uh, phone with an app on it or something like that, I invite you to pull that out. We are going to be in the book of Zechariah and I'll give you a chance to find it. Some of you are saying to me right now in your heads, you know, Pastor Brian, I'm just learning there's a book in the Bible called Zechariah. I know there's a lot of books that end in Ayah, but I didn't know there was a Zechariah. It's in there. And so I'll give you a chance. You look at the table of contents in the Old Testament, there's two Z books and they're right next to each other, just Haggai in the middle. So you find Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, you're in the right category. Somewhere between Psalms and the Gospels, you'll find it. I got to say, just at the beginning, I, I need your help a little bit here this morning because if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know we've been in a sermon series we're calling Overwhelmed, Major Lessons Through the Minor Prophets. And I hope you enjoyed uh, this series. We've certainly enjoyed presenting it and studying these books and, and seeing what God had to say to his people. I have found, just personally, I have been surprised how much what God said through the minor prophets speaks to our world today. The correlation between what God said 2,500, 3,000 years ago and how it speaks into our world today is pretty amazing to me. Uh, and so uh, we come to a book like Zechariah and the reason these books are called the minor prophets is not because of the lessons that they have to teach, but primarily because of their length. So you have the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and you find, we'll read a lot of Isaiah verses Christmas season and you hear verses from those books. The minor prophets are only minor, not because of the content of the book, but just the length of the books. I would suggest to you this morning that Zechariah is uh, miscategorized. Whereas many of these books have one or two or three chapters, uh, Zechariah has 14 chapters and nine visions and prophecies within those chapters, four specifically to something that would happen five years after Zechariah uh, living and then a partridge in a pear tree. And so 14 and nine and three and four and all these things that are happening in the book of Zechariah. And we said, we'll take this whole book uh, uh, that happens over 50 years and 14 chapters and we'll condense it down into a half an hour and somehow make it make sense in your life today. So I need your help a little bit because we're going to try to cover a ton of material in a short amount of time. So are you with me this morning? Can you hang with me? All right. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been in a situation? Have you ever been in a situation where you knew there was something good you were supposed to do? Or you knew there was a task you were supposed to accomplish? There was a goal that was set and you just had the worst time trying to figure out how you were going to motivate yourself to accomplish it. You ever been in that situation? Have you ever been in that place where uh, you knew you were supposed to do something good? You knew you were supposed to do something right. You knew there was a goal you needed to get done. And it wasn't the fact that you needed to be, uh, have an argument with yourself as to whether or not it was a good idea. You knew it was a good idea. But to find the motivation to go and actually do that idea was a whole nother story altogether. We've all been in that place, right? In just a few weeks, many people are going to make goals for their life, for the new year. And if you're like me, uh, it's very easy to make goals. I have no problem setting goals. You want me to set a goal as to how much money I want to make? I can set that goal. You want me to set a goal as to how much I'd like to weigh? I can set that goal. You want me to set a goal as to what habits I'd like to break? No problem. The problem is not the goal setting. The problem is the goal keeping, right? And the problem is not setting the mark. The problem is the motivation to go and reach that mark. 
couple years ago, my wife Lori and I uh, celebrated 10 years of, of marriage. And to celebrate, we decided to take a trip and we traveled to Italy. And it was a wonderful trip. And we went to the city of Florence and we spent a couple days there. And then we traveled uh, to the city of Rome and we were in the city of Rome for the day. And I forget what we did in the morning, something super touristy, something like going to see the Colosseum or the, or the Spanish Steps or something. And then uh, we did what we did almost every day because... Italy, like many other countries other than the United States, has gotten something right that I think we get very wrong. And that is about midday after lunch, everyone just goes home. Everyone just takes a break. And I know some of you are from cultures that do that, and I'm telling you, uh, we're getting this wrong in the United States. We should do this. So everyone has lunch, right? And then everyone just goes home. And they'll put signs up on the business that say back at 2.30, but that doesn't mean anything. Could be four, could be five, whenever they're done being at home and resting. And so uh, that particular day, Lori and I went back to our hotel room in Rome, and we had an itinerary of things we wanted to get done. Now, I don't go to Rome often. I go once every 35 years. That's the pace I'm setting. So I won't be back for another 35 years to Rome. And so since I'm there, I should probably get some things done. There's plenty to see, plenty to do, plenty to take in. And so we had this itinerary that we were supposed to accomplish while we were there in the city. But we got back to our hotel room after lunch. And we did something that's, that's just deadly. And maybe you've been here before too. Nothing kills a goal or motivation like what we did. We opened up our iPad we had with us and we flipped open the cover. And there's this little uh, red app that has an N in it. And we tapped the Netflix app. And that's all you need to do. And we started a show that we had never watched before but someone told us we would like. And sure enough, we liked it a lot. And we watched the first episode of that show there in the mid-afternoon. And then Netflix does that thing that, uh, you know, whoever's in charge of Netflix doing a nice job with this, is that when the credits roll, the next episode starts to count down in the corner. So the credits start to roll and it's like, next episode in three, two, one. Do you remember, like, I remember the days where, where uh, you would watch an episode on television and if you didn't see it in person, then tough break. And then you just had to wait a week. There was no other choice. You were forced to wait a week for the next episode of that show, but not with Netflix. It's three seconds. So we watch this show in three, two, one, and then you're in it. And by the time it starts, you just have to watch it. And so uh, we're sitting there with this itinerary of things that we should be doing in the city of Rome, seeing the city of Rome. And I, you know, you can judge us if you want. I don't, I don't care. That's up to you. But I'm telling you the truth. About eight o'clock that night, we finally closed the iPad and decided to go get something to eat. Have you been there? <laughs> Have you been in a place where you knew you were supposed to do something good, but you just couldn't find the motivation to go and do it? Have you been there in your relationship with God? Has God asked you to do something in your life, 
Or if you listened to a sermon or read a book or heard something said and you, said, and you were convicted, and if you followed Jesus for more than a day, this has happened to you. You've heard something said or you, you saw something on, online or you, or you heard the sermon and you knew God was speaking to you and God was saying something to you like, you need to be in my word more often. You need to be reading my Bible, not just when you come and hear someone else talk about it, but in your daily life. Or you should be spending some more time with me in prayer. Or you need to do something in your marriage or in your family or in your work. And sometimes God causes us to huge things like you need to move or you need to change your job, whatever that might be. You need to go to a different school. And God calls us to these things, the small things, how we spend our day and the big moves. And when God says things to us like that, we know it's a good thing. No one has to come and argue with us and tell us whether it's a good thing or not. Like, we know we should read our Bible more. We know we should pray more. We know that if God tells us to go and do something, we should go and do it. The problem is not the goal setting for many of us. The problem is the goal keeping. How do we keep ourselves motivated to do the work that God is calling us to do? Well, this morning, as we look at the book of Zechariah, we are going to find God's people in a place where they've been giving a, given a good task by God to do, but find themselves quite unmotivated to complete it. And Zechariah speaks into this moment, and he tells the people what their motivation should be to complete the work. And I think, if you can stick with me here, through a book that's long and quite confusing, That God's going to give us something, he's going to give you something and me something that we can use in our own lives to motivate us as well. When God tells us to go and do something and we find it very difficult to go and do it. Now, Zechariah, I want to take a brief moment and just talk about when he prophesies and why. If you were here last week, you remember that we talked about the book of Haggai, which is another prophet who speaks to the southern kingdom uh, of Judah. And let me, let me just take a brief moment and explain all that. Because if, if you don't go to seminary, this is confusing. I understand. It took me three years of seminary to start to understand this. So here's what's happening. God had his people, the Israelites, right? Calls them out of Egypt. We know that story. They become eventually their own kingdom, the Israelites, and they have a king. And their first king is named, does anyone know who the first king is? Who knows? Saul. Saul's the first king. And then after Saul comes David. And even if this is your first morning in a church, I bet that you know who David is. This is David and Goliath, David. You've heard of this guy before. And so he becomes the second king of the Israelites. And the third king is his son, Solomon. And Solomon is the wise king. Solomon is the, remember the story? He's going to cut the baby in two. You remember that story? That story sticks with you. And so that's the third king. And then after Solomon, after Solomon, the kingdom splits into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And in 931 BC, the kingdom splits. And what we have in front of us is a timeline of the southern kingdom. Now, the southern kingdom had a very key city in it. In fact, it remains a key city to this week. Does anyone know the name of the city that is in the the southern kingdom? Jerusalem. Jerusalem, right? So the city of Jerusalem is a key city, and that is in the southern kingdom of Judah. Even though the northern kingdom of Israel is a much bigger area land wise, Judah has Jerusalem, and that's important. So God speaks to this people group, 
through his prophets. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago, stick with me, a couple of weeks ago, we talked through Habakkuk. And Habakkuk talked to the people of Judah while life was still good in the city of Jerusalem. And the message that came to Habakkuk is because my people, this is from God, because my people have disobeyed me, the Babylonians, a ruthless empire, are going to come in and take my people into exile. And after Habakkuk prophesies that, sure enough, it happens. And the Babylonians come in and completely destroy the city of Jerusalem. They don't just take the people. They not only take the people out of the city of Jerusalem, they destroy the walls of the city, they destroy the homes of the people, and they destroy the temple of God. And the city of Jerusalem sits like that for decades. You think about a construction site, like a contractor buys an old house in your neighborhood and knocks it down and then waits six months to build something new. Think about what happens to that lot just over six months or a year when something's knocked down and nothing new is put into place. Dirt and dust gathers, weeds begin to grow, uh, the land starts to look unkept. Well, think about what the city of Jerusalem must have looked like after decades of no one being there and no one keeping it up, completely flattened to the ground. So in 538 BC, when the Babylonians are conquered by the Persians and King Cyrus of Persia says Jews can go back to Jerusalem, you see 42,000 Jews, this is all in the book of Ezra, 42,000 Jews and some change come walking back into the city of Jerusalem and the place is a mess. Not only is everything knocked down, but, but the weeds are growing and there's just nothing there. And so they become very busy putting together their city. They start to rebuild their homes. They start to build crops. They start to uh, raise livestock. And they start to, as we talked last week in the book of Haggai, they start to provide, preserve, and protect for themselves. And the prophet Haggai comes in in 520 BC. And he speaks to the people. And he said, listen, you're very busy providing and preserving and protecting for yourselves, but you're neglecting the most important work that God wants you to do. And that work is to rebuild what? The temple, right? Someone was here last week. That's good. They rebuild the temple. And so Haggai comes and says, you are neglecting the most important work. And in fact, that's why things aren't going well for you. Now, Zechariah comes in and he speaks to the people at the exact same time. And you say, well, what do you mean by exact same time? Like, uh, are we just guessing? Nope. They speak two months apart from each other. And I'll tell you how we know. Haggai chapter 1 verse 1 says this. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai. So we know the exact day and month that Haggai began to prophesy in 1520 BC. And Zechariah gives us the same detail. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. So two months apart from each other, Haggai and Zechariah start to prophesy to the people. Now here's the difference. They prophesied to the same group of people about the same thing. Haggai prophesies for four months because just like he gives us a specific date where he begins at the beginning of his book, he gives us the date when he ends at the end of his book. For four months, Haggai prophesies. Zechariah prophesies for four decades. So Zechariah goes from 520 BC to 480 BC. Now, why is this significant? Haggai 
Haggai and Zechariah come into the picture and their primary function is God uses them to motivate the people to do the work that he's calling them to do. Just like you and I need motivation, when God calls us to do a work, when God tells us to do something good and we know it's good, we just can't get our act together enough. We can't stop being busy with our own things enough to do what God is calling us to do. We need motivation to come in and get us moving. That is how God uses his prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. They are coming in as, as God's motivational speaker to the people to get them moving on the work that God is calling them to do. So it's the same group of people at the same time, with the same project, but Haggai and Zechariah use massively different techniques. Haggai uh, comes in and for four months uses a technique that we're just going to refer to, and you've heard this before, as the carrot and the stick technique. Haggai comes in and he's like a bull in a china shop, and he really pulls no punches with the people. And he comes in and he says, look at you, you're providing for yourselves and you're preserving and protecting, you're rebuilding your homes, you're raising livestock, you're raising crops, you're protecting yourself from the kingdoms around you who want to do harm to you. But, but if you look at what you're doing, your results are terrible. You build houses, but you're never satisfied. You grow food, but it's never enough. You try to make money, but, it, but you just spend it all. He said your consumption is outpacing your ability to provide for yourselves. And you're so caught up in this cycle that you're neglecting the greater work, which is the temple of God. And Haggai comes in with the carrot and the stick. And if you're familiar with this analogy, I'm not sure exactly when it started. I tried to look that up this week, and there's a lot of arguments, uh, as there is on the internet about everything. There's a lot of arguments as to where this came from, this phrase. But the thing that everybody agrees on is that it has to do with how people would get a donkey, a stubborn donkey, to move. That's where there's agreement. And so you have in the carrot and the stick both reward and punishment. And if you want to get a stubborn mule to move or a stubborn donkey to move, you offer both. In the one hand, you have the reward, which is the carrot that you hold out in front of the donkey. And if that's not enough, then with the stick, you bring in the punishment to get the donkey to move. And so the carrot and the stick refers to both, the reward and the punishment. And Haggai comes in to the people and he brings the carrot and the stick for four months. And he says, listen, life is not good for you right now. Things are not going well. You want to know why? Because you're not working on the temple. You're worried about your own little houses and you're worried about growing your own food and you're worried about making money, but you're not worried about the things of God. So here's the deal. If you'll build the temple of God, he will bless you. And if you don't, things will not go well with you. And the carrot and the stick, it can be an effective technique. This is primarily how I try to discipline my kids. I don't know if this is probably what you do too. Now I'd like to clarify, there's no literal sticks involved, okay? But the principle is the same. If we want our children, we have a, a six-year-old and a three-year-old, uh, if we want our children to do something, right, we will both use a system of rewards and a system of punishment to try and get them to do the behavior we want them to do. So if we're trying to get them uh, to, show, to get ready for school, listen, if you get ready to school, you can have a little treat in the car. And if you don't get ready for school, things are not going to go well. You will not be watching television when you get home or you won't be able to play with such and such toy. 
And we use that system of reward and punishment to try to get a desired behavior. I can think of a time in my life when it was effective. Listen, I've already let you uh, judge me on the Rome thing, so we'll just keep the judgment flying, and I'll just be honest with you, okay? You can think of me whatever you want. But when I was a kid, um, I had a problem, I had a habit that I had to break. I sucked my thumb for a long time. And you say, well, what's like a long time? Well, I remember my parents and my teachers and my dentist working together to try to get me to stop. So if you, can co- if you can remember in your mind that process happening, it's been too long. <laughs> and the way that they, I, they finally got it to stop uh, was two things. One, we had a big sit-down conversation with the dentist uh, about the damage that I was doing to my teeth. And two, my mom put a big chart on the refrigerator with 14 days on it and a prize at the end. And the chart said that if I could stop this behavior for 14 straight days, then I would receive what in my mind was the greatest prize that could be offered to me. And that was, I would receive a pair of A-Team walkie-talkies. Now, some of you don't remember the A-Team, but Mr. T and the A-Team, that was a big deal. John, you you show them at the A-Team walkie. There they are. There's the A-Team walkie-talkies. This was a big deal for me. And that was enough. That got the job done. And so the, 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 but the, the reward and punishment working together changed my behavior. Now, I think that in church world, if you've been in church world for any amount of time, this is what we try to do the most. This is how we try to change behavior in church world. We try to motivate people to do what God wants them to do. We try to motivate people to to do the things that the Bible says to do. We most often use the carrot and the stick like we're a bunch of stubborn mules that need to get going. And sometimes it's effective. So you come to church and, and you hear the sermon or you hear the Bible verse that's read and it says something along the lines of, listen, if you do what God wants you to do, things will go well with you. Honor your father and mother that it may go well with you in the land. And if you don't, there's going to be punishment. And in some ways that can be an effective way to change our behavior, but I don't know about you, but I can tell you in my life and if I look at the lives of others, The idea that God's waiting to get us or the idea that he's going to give us something if we're good or bad doesn't change behavior over a lifetime in many cases. See, God's not Santa Claus where if you're naughty, you get bad things and if you're good, you get good things. That's not how God works. That's a part of the larger picture And so God uses Haggai and Zechariah in tandem. Haggai comes in and he brings the carrot and the stick. He says, start this work. Start building the temple. Otherwise, it's not going to go well with you. But if you build the temple, things will begin to change. And it is effective to start people on the right direction. But now, someone has to motivate the people to continue the work even when they don't want to do it. The carrot and the stick got them going. It pushed them in the right direction. But Zechariah comes in 
and is used by God in a different way. And I want to say to you and me, for me personally, this is what I need to hear in my life. When I know I should be doing something that God wants me to do, and it is difficult for me to get motivated, what I need to hear is not the old carrot and stick routine that got me to church in the first place. I need to hear what Zachariah has to say. And the image that Zechariah gives his people is di- the people is different. He tells them to continue to build the temple, to do the work that they've begun. And then he gives these people nine visions and dreams. And we're going to go through all nine. It's going to take about 10 minutes each one. No, that's not true. That's not true. <laughs> He gives the people nine visions and dreams. Let's just be honest. If you read them, the visions are weird, just like your dreams are weird. The difference is is that God's speaking through these very particularly to his people. And so God gives the prophet these dreams and these visions because he has something to say to his people. And in the final vision, in the ninth vision, I think what we have is a good summary of what all the visions are leading towards. And so we're gonna talk about that briefly. It's in Zechariah chapter six. And in this chapter, God gives his people an image. And it's not the carrot and the stick and the donkey, it's something different. And it starts with this. The first image he gives them is that of a crown. And this, I need you to hang with me because it's all going to make sense in a minute, but we got to put it, we got to set it up first. The first image he gives them is that of a crown. And he says in, Je- in Zechariah chapter six, verse 11, take from them and them there is some of the exiles that have returned silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is the first thing, and I know it doesn't sound that significant, but but let me tell you why this is significant quickly. God says, take some gold and silver from some of the people that you know, some of your fellow exiles that have returned to Jerusalem, make a crown and put it on the head of the high priest. This is why this is odd and, and, and interesting. The office of leader among God's people and priest, and priest is the mediator between the people and God, right? So the office of king and priest had never before been combined in scripture. So Saul was king, David was king, Solomon was king, but they were not the priest. The priest who was in charge of the temple was someone different. And the priest mediated between the people, including the king and God. And here in Zechariah 6, for the first time, God is saying through Zechariah, we're going to take these two offices and we're going to put them together. We're going to take the crown of the king and put it on the head of the priest. Number two. Here we get the image of the stick. The crown and the stick, or more specifically in Zechariah chapter 6, the branch. And say to him, this is verse 12 now, and say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. 
So we get two pictures here, the crown and the branch. And what God is saying is this person who is the branch is going to build the temple and he will be both priest and king and he will be sitting on the throne. And there's a third image that we get. And for this image, we got to flip over to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And here's the third image that goes along with the first two. And that image is the same as we talked about earlier. And that is the image of a donkey. Listen to what he says. Behold. Your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. So here's the three images Zechariah gives the people in 520 BC, a crown, a branch, and a donkey. That's helpful, right? So now you're motivated to do the work God calls you to do. What in the world does all this mean? Here's what Zechariah is saying to the people. He's saying, you think that all you're doing is building a temple so that God can dwell among his people again. You think all you're doing is reconstructing the temple and once you put the last piece in place and dedicate this thing that the work is done. Zechariah says that's not the case. What you're doing here takes place in part of a much larger story. Someone is coming, Zechariah says. Someone who is going to bring together the office of king and priest. Someone who is going to be the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, but one who is also going to be the ultimate mediator between God and his people. And where it used to be that there was one king that ruled over the people, and then there was a priest who mediated between God and the people, now there is going to be one who is in, in his own self is going to epitomize both offices completely, the office of king and the office of priest. And so when a baby is born in a manger in Bethlehem, he will perfectly bring together both sides of the equation. He will be king of kings and he will be lord of lords, but he will also be son of God, the ultimate mediator between God and his people. And Zechariah says that king and priest is going to come. And the work that you're doing today and building the temple isn't just about getting a temple in the city of Jerusalem again. It is about ushering in that part of God's plan. And then he says the branch is coming. And if you know anything about your Bible, and we don't have time to go through it all today, but in the in the book of Isaiah and in the book of Revelation, God clearly refers to Jesus Christ. And in Revelation chapter 22, Jesus clearly refers to himself as the branch that comes from the root of Jesse. And so the branch also speaks to the one who is going to build the temple. And that too is the person of Jesus Christ. And then most clearly of the three, you have this verse in Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 of someone who brings salvation riding on a donkey. And when it's time for the gospel writers, Matthew and John, to write about Jesus a week before his crucifixion, hopping on a donkey and riding into the city of Jerusalem while people wave palm branches. And if you've ever showed up to church the week before Easter, you know what we're talking about. This is what we celebrate on Palm Sunday. Jesus riding a donkey into that city of Jerusalem. Very clearly, the gospel writers know exactly 
exactly who prophesied this to happen. And they use Zechariah 9 and they quote it directly, both in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospel of John. And Matthew says, this took place, Jesus riding into the city on the donkey, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. And Zechariah comes to the people and he says, you guys think that this is just about a temple. I understand. And with Haggai, he got you going. But you need to understand that the work that you are doing of building the temple of God is taking place within a much larger narrative of God's redemptive work in his world. That there is coming one who is going to be both king and priest, who is going to be the branch from the root of Jesse, and who is going to be the savior riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And unless you do the work here today of building the temple, you are going to affect that part of God's plan. So be motivated, not just because if you build the temple, God will give you a reward. And if you don't build the temple, he'll bring punishment. That might be part of it. But build the temple because God is doing something great among his people. And God has a much bigger plan that is happening. And the Messiah is coming. In your life, there's these little things that God asks you to do. Read your Bible, pray, make a move in your career, go to a different school. I don't know what it is. They seem so insignificant. It seems like such a small thing. And sometimes the idea that God's going to give us a reward if we're good and punish if we're bad will force us, it will make us do things. We'll stick with the Bible reading plan for a month. But we need to remember that everything that God is asking us to do takes place within a much larger story that is far bigger than us as an individual, far bigger than us in this room, far bigger than us in the church in New England or in the United States. It is a redemptive plan that stretches out of the course of history from the time that Adam and Eve stepped away from God in the garden to the point that Jesus Christ returns to this world again. And when I am doing things for God today, when you're doing things for God today, when you're doing the work that he calls you to do and you're taking those steps forward, you are doing it not just for rewards and punishment. You are doing it because you know that the Messiah has come just like God said he would and you know and I know that the Messiah is coming again. And so just like the people had the prophecy in 520 BC that the Messiah was coming 500 years later, you and I have the prophecy that he's coming back. Could be today, it could be tomorrow, it could be 100 years. But he's coming. And that greater story ought to motivate us to live and do exactly what God is calling us to do because the time is short and he will come again. And when we don't do the work that God's calling us to do, it's not just affecting us. It's affecting the entire plan that God has put us as a part of. There's an old story Uh, that's told about uh, JFK. And he was at uh, the NASA Space Center, I assume in in Houston. And you know, in 1961, I believe it was, JFK stood and made a bold declaration 
that the United States would put a man on the moon and return him back to earth within a decade. And that kind of shook everybody when he said that. That was unthinkable and, and, and very uh, impactful and a, a lot of pride in the country. And so he made this claim. And so in 1962, he was walking through the NASA Space Center. And there was a janitor cleaning the floor. And as the story goes, JFK stopped and he walked over to the janitor and he said to him, sir, what is it that you're doing? And I don't know if the janitor stopped and looked at the president. I like to think that maybe he just kept sweeping or mopping or whatever it was he was doing. And he said, Mr. President, I'm helping to put a man on the moon. Do you see your life in that same context in God's story? It can seem so insignificant, but you have a part to play. Whatever God is asking you to do in your life, when we don't do it, it's affecting much more than just ourselves. God has a great plan of redemption in, that's happening in this world, and it's going to find its completion in Christ when he comes again. And it is up to us to do the work that God is calling us to do, no matter how mundane or simple it seems. And that's why when we walk into church on a Sunday morning, the people that are greeting people at the door aren't just shaking hands and smiling the same way someone might do at Walmart. They are welcoming people in to the place where God is going to move and they are setting the tone for everything that's going to happen the rest of the day. And the people right now that are with our children, they are not babysitting our kids. This is not childcare. This is discipleship. They are pouring into our young people and raising up young people who will serve and follow Jesus Christ. And the people that play their instruments on Sunday morning. This isn't a talent show. These are people who are using the gifts that God has given them to bring him glory and walk us into his presence. And when you walk into work on tomorrow or when you walk into school or whatever it is that God has called you to do, you're not just going to those places. You are using your gifts and your talents and abilities to bring God glory in the place that he has called you to. And whatever it is that God has asked you to do and whatever it is that he's asking you to do. Those things are important, not just for your life right now and not just because God might get you if you do bad and reward you if you do good. It is because it is part of a much larger redemptive story of creation, a much larger redemption story of God's grace and mercy to his people and the kingdom that was established on earth through Christ Jesus in the manger in Bethlehem will find its completion one day in Christ's return to this earth. And so we ought to be busy not building our own little kingdoms, but building his. So when you have trouble motivating yourself to do what it is God wants you to do, think about the crown, the branch, and the donkey. The Messiah who came and the Messiah who is coming. And do the work. I'm going to invite our worship team to come forward as we close this morning. And if you would, would you just bow your head and close your eyes with me for one moment? And let's think about this together. Listen, some of you are sitting in this place this morning 
and you know very specifically that God has asked you to do something or God has asked you to stop something or God has asked you to speak to someone or to go somewhere or to do something. It could be as, as massive as, as changing jobs. It could be as simple as a conversation you need to have with a family member. But God is asking you to do something and you know the thing that God's asking you to do is good. But you can't seem to find the motivation to get it done. May you be reminded today that the time is short. That God has us here for a reason and for a purpose. And it has very little to do with building our own kingdoms and everything to do with building his kingdom. Would we be reminded, would you be reminded this morning that your life takes place inside of a much larger story? It's not just about you. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it's about God's work of redemption in this world. And so maybe you're sitting here this morning and you know God has called you to start something or stop something, continue something, begin something. And this morning you need to come before him and, and tell him that you're sorry that you have been delaying. That you're sorry that you started the work and stopped it. You're sorry that you, you never got the work going. And ask that by his spirit, he would give you the strength that you need. And through the grace and mercy that he's shown you through Jesus Christ, give you the strength that you need to go and do the work that he's called you to do. And in just a moment as we close, some of our leaders of the church will be up front. And as we sing, you're more than welcome to come up and either kneel at the altars and bring those things to the Lord or go and have someone pray with you. Our elders are here to pray with you. Whatever you bring into this room, we'll lift it up to the Lord together. But if God's calling you to do something, don't leave the room this morning without dealing with that. So God, we come before you thankful for your grace and for your mercy in our lives. Thankful that because of Jesus Christ, you forgive us. God, help us to do the work you've called us to do. Help us to be the people you've called us to be. Not so that we become great, but so that you are great. And your work of redemption can take place in and through this world. We give you all the glory in Jesus' name.